0: You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with guests to discuss the role religion plays in people's lives, in our politics, and throughout our world. In today's episode, we're discussing the role the Catholic Church played during the early years of the AIDS epidemic. How did the Catholic Church respond when AIDS hit in the 1980s, especially when the most visibly affected group was the LGBT community? In what ways did Catholicism inspire people to become involved in AIDS activism? And what does this history teach us about the place of queer people in Catholic communities today? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm thrilled to be joined today by journalist Michael O'Loughlin, who is the national correspondent for America Magazine, a Catholic publication founded in 1909. Michael created the exemplary podcast Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church, available now on Apple, Spotify, and elsewhere. And you can read about his experience working on the podcast in the upcoming June issue of The Revealer Magazine at therevealer.org. Hi, Michael. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Hey, Brett. Good. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you. So I'd like to start by commending you for creating an outstanding podcast, and I don't say that lightly. Uh, I often describe myself as a scholar of religion and LGBT history, and I think you've done a masterful job in several ways. By that, I mean... Many people, including queer people and those who did not witness what unfolded in the 1980s and 90s, do not know much about the horrors of the AIDS crisis, and your podcast gives insight into some of that history. You also deal with religion in a sophisticated way. I think when most people think about religion and AIDS or the Catholic Church and AIDS, they likely think of condemnation, of religious leaders claiming that AIDS was punishment for sexual sin, and that's certainly part of the story Uh, But your podcast tells another story uh, in many parts. It makes clear that many people with AIDS turned to religion, that Catholicism remained important for many LGBT people, and that several priests and religious sisters supported gay men and others with AIDS. So I'd like to begin uh, by asking you what led you to want to do a podcast series on AIDS in the Catholic Church. Uh, Why was it important for you to explore this history? And what do stories about the AIDS crisis reveal about Catholicism and queer people.
1: Yeah, thanks for that uh, thoughtful kind of uh, summary of the podcast. Um, I set out to create uh, the podcast pretty simply because I'm gay and Catholic, and I'm just really uh, searching for history that kind of talks about what it's like for people to navigate what can be a complicated uh, dual identity. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's interesting. I'm 34, uh, so I wasn't really old enough to remember much of the AIDS crisis. Sure. Um, and it was uh, at dinner with a priest friend one night when he was telling me about his own chaplaincy work during the AIDS crisis and how he had gotten in trouble by his bishop for ministering to the gay community. And hmm. I was really fascinated by that because it, it never occurred to me that there was a, a role, not only a a role period, but a significant role for the Catholic Church at the beginning of the AIDS crisis. So I started digging around and realized that there was this whole kind of wealth of information from especially LGBT Catholics and their allies from the 80s and 90s who lived through this very trying time, not only navigating their identity as LGBT people in an institution that was hostile to their rights, but also fighting for their lives at the same time. Often, um, often, kind of against the institutional church. So I was curious about that sort of negative history. Mm-hmm. But what I quickly learned as I talked to these people was they, uh, many of them told me that it was their church as well. So they were fighting, um, you know, against the institution, but also for their right to remain in that institution. So mm-hmm. much of the podcast, while it deals with history, um, it's also about identity. And and that was um, a goal for me to kind of learn these lessons and then share them with the wider um, LGBT community, Catholic community, and just people in general who are interested in what it's like to navigate identity.
0: That's great. So I'd I'd like to sort of pick up on one point that you just brought up there about people who, um, although there were tensions, wanted to remain uh, within the Catholic Church. And you start the series by introducing listeners to a gay man who credits his Catholicism as actually one of the crucial reasons why he became involved in AIDS activism in the 80s. And then you interview people across the country who identify as gay and Catholic or others who are straight or part of Catholic religious orders. Uh, who describe Catholicism as a key reason why they started helping people with AIDS. And I think that may strike some listeners as surprising. So would you mind uh, explaining for us why some of the people you met credit Catholicism as one key reason why they became involved in helping people with AIDS during this time?
1: Sure. The first episode is about a man named David Pace. Uh, David was um, working in AIDS ministry uh, in part because he was diagnosed with HIV pretty early on in the crisis. Uh, His partner, uh, Bill, died from AIDS uh, in the 1980s, Uh, and Bill was motivated to help his community during this time. Uh, He lived in New York and was actually one of the founding uh, volunteers of the Gay Men's Health Crisis, an organization that played a huge role in uh, education around Uh, safe sex and uh, getting the gay community to embrace the role of condoms and preventing the spread of HIV. And David said that even though he felt kind of under siege from the church, uh, this is at a time when the Vatican is putting out uh, pretty harmful anti-gay statements on kind of condemning homosexuality, calling it intrinsically disordered. Uh, And again, this is at the height of the AIDS crisis. So he said, you know, on the one hand, his friends are all dying, from HIV and AIDS. On the other hand, he's finding, com- he's finding comfort in the church, even as kind of institutional leaders attack the community. Hmm. But he said the reason he was compelled to get involved in fighting for um, fighting for his life, literally, and you know, fighting for his community was that the church had instilled in him a value, uh, the value of social justice and fighting for the marginalized. And even if that wasn't always, even if the church wasn't always able to live up to those ideals. They were instilled in people like david and many other people i interviewed who saw in the gay community at the time a marginalized group that needed help so hmm. even though he felt attacked he felt like he could do something because of his faith
0: interesting so you know as i'm hearing you say that and as i was listening to the podcast and i think this in part comes up for you and part of the issues of identity that you wanted to tackle why do you think still you know all of these many years since the worst of the aids crisis that the predominant assumption is that it's either very difficult or impossible to be queer and Catholic. Or am I incorrect? I mean, based on you know everyone you've talked to, is that do you think that's still um, a question that queer Catholics get? Like, how are you reconciling this? Or do you think we've sort of moved past and people have, have accepted it more than then?
1: It's a great question. Uh, I would say that for me, I was constantly getting that question. Mm-hmm. Um, as I talk to some of my friends in their 20s, um, which <laughs> I don't feel like is that much of an age difference, but they don't seem to have as much of an issue with it. Um, there, there are certainly still personal struggles, I think, for LGBT youth who grow up in a religious household or a Catholic household, because we don't learn kind of uh, LGBT history uh, in our families or in the church. It's something you have to seek out, uh, you know as you come to terms with your own sexuality. Um, but I, I think that the reason is pretty clear. I mean, the church still teaches that sex um, outside of marriage between a man and a woman is considered sinful. Uh, there's, still some, um, there's still a fair amount of uh, bigotry and prejudice against LGBT people from uh, church leaders. Uh, you know, we have Pope Francis who is celebrated uh, for his sort of uh, receptiveness toward LGBT people. But even he has stumbled once in a while, um, especially LGBT activists tell me uh, right. they feel like he doesn't quite get it, even if he is willing to meet with people. Um, so I, I think there is still a sense that you can be Catholic or you can be LGBT. And even when there is acceptance, uh, like for me as a gay Catholic, I've kind of been working in this space uh, for about a decade. And I feel you know like I have a good relationship with church leaders and I have a community here in Chicago. Um, there, there is still a sense that that's unusual. Um, I, I do think it's changing a little bit. And what I sought to do with the podcast was, even though it feels new for me, uh, it's actually not. I mean, these people, um, there are several people I interviewed in the podcast who have been working on this fight for LGBT justice in the Catholic Church for decades now. It's just I didn't know their stories, um, hmm. and I had to seek them out.
0: Right. Right. No, I, and how you started that is, is is crucial to the answer is that many people— queer or otherwise don't know queer history and don't know sort of what early generations have been fighting for and doing. Uh, And I think that's part of why uh, your podcast is, is so great. Um, so I want to slightly pivot and talk about a figure who you mentioned in your uh, article for The Revealer and who also comes up in the podcast and I think is a figure who many people would say any conversation about Catholicism and, and the AIDS epidemic would need to address. And that's New York City's Cardinal O'Connor, who um, uh, was certainly a polarizing figure during the worst of the AIDS crisis in the United States. And uh, from my understanding, was probably one of the most powerful Catholics in the country at the time. So, uh, the AIDS activist group ACT UP uh, intensely opposed Cardinal O'Connor in part because of his refusal to support condom distribution and safer sex education, and his his broader influence on New York City politics. and And many of those activists, uh, I think, believed that he had blood on his hands and was making the AIDS epidemic worse. So I'm curious to hear from you. Uh, you know, having talked to activists and people who worked in Catholic hospitals and churches during his tenure. How do you think we should remember Cardinal O'Connor and his response to the AIDS epidemic?
1: You're right in that it's a very difficult question. Uh, <laughs> O'Connor was certainly, I would say, one of the like last great archbishops in the United States. And I don't mean great in that he was uh, good at his job or that I'm a fan. I mean great that he had this connection directly to the White House. Uh, he was mm. able to use his influence in his office to get legislation passed in New York City or kill legislation that he didn't like. Uh, he just he represented a church um, that had the political connections and the membership behind it to get things done. Uh, and he used that power um, in New York, especially he fought against um, non-discrimination laws for LGBT people. Uh, he tried to fight against uh, the teaching of safe sex in public schools during the height of the AIDS crisis. And that's really why activists took issue with him. Um, there was this conception early on that ACT UP didn't like the Catholic Church because it was against homosexuality and didn't permit condoms. But as I interviewed ACT UP members and read some oral history projects, it became clear that what they were actually upset about was the Catholic Church getting involved in public health debates or the Church getting involved in the political process around gay rights. They they saw the Church as kind of uh, stepping out of its own lane in terms of you know it should be ministering to it, its own members, not dictating the lives of other people. So it was really complicated. Uh, But one thing I also found was that people who knew him said that he was actually a compassionate guy, um, even around the AIDS epidemic. Um, There's a story that he set out to visit a 1000 patients with AIDS in Catholic hospitals in New York, which were Hmm. uh, some of the bigger hospitals serving the the, the patient population affected by HIV and AIDS. Uh, and he says he accomplished that. Um, it's a little odd to me that he set out a sort of <laughs> benchmark for how many people he wanted to visit and then was able to count and say he did that. But uh, people say he did. He was visiting hospitals. So, the, th- But then the critique there is that um act up members would say well it's fine the church cares about us when we're dying but we'd rather live and they're getting in the way of that so hmm. there's always this give and take in terms of the institutional church and he cardinal o'connor represents that and i think he also represents the complexity of this time i mean it wasn't the catholic church alone by any means that um sort of uh, added to the stigma of people living with hiv and aids it was every sector of society grappling with this marginalized community being affected by this devastating illness and how do we respond?
0: Right, right. And, and I, my understanding from your podcast and, and elsewhere and what you just said is that for the ACT UP, activists that uh, they seem to think of this as like a separation of church and state issue, that he had overstepped his bounds with his authority into politics. And so then they protested the church and they got backlash for having been seen as uh, disrupting religious services um, and, and got vilified in part for their disruption of what is seen as sort of um, you know, a sacred space where people should be allowed to worship
1: yeah I mean, for those who don't know like act up i mean it literally took over a mass at St Patrick's Cathedral, and a hundred people were arrested for this what was supposed to be a silent protest, turned into a very loud and boisterous protest and there was a lot of pushback against that, but I think you're exactly right they they saw the church as sort of going beyond what they thought it was appropriate for a religious institution and wanted to push back but an interesting thing I learned was that a lot of ACT UP members were either Catholic themselves or were ex-Catholics. So Mm. there was a little, I think, more going on, Um, you know, the psychology of a religious person taking on their religious institution does create some um, interesting dynamics. So there was a lot going on with that protest.
0: Right. Great. So uh, I'd like to pivot then slightly and and ask you a bit about the present day. I've seen a few articles that compare the AIDS epidemic to our current coronavirus pandemic. And I'm wondering if you see any parallels, if you think it's appropriate to make any connections, or if there are things that you learned uh, about the AIDS crisis that you think would be helpful for us to consider as we try to make it through this pandemic.
1: I wrote one of those, uh, one of those uh, essays ah. for uh, America magazine, the Jesuit magazine where I work, and I, I struggled with it because I think um, the the one the one commonality maybe is when I was uh, producing the podcast. One question I would ask everyone, and this uh, podcast was made uh, well before the the current um, coronavirus pandemic, but I, I would always ask them to kind of describe the. Uh, sense of fear that pervaded society in the early days of HIV and AIDS, and people often had a hard time to do that because they said if you didn't live through it, you couldn't quite understand. Um, And I did go back to several of the people I interviewed for the podcast and asked them, you know, what do you make of this versus back Mm -hmm. then? And And they said that they did feel a similarity between the fear people are feeling. Mm -hmm. um so in that sense i think it's fine i mean people who lived through it worked through it lost friends and loved ones said that there is some similarities but there are so many differences that i think it's not an entirely helpful comparison especially when it comes to stigma Um, today you know (laughs) uh, political leaders are talking about the coronavirus pandemic Um, You know, every day there's press conferences by governors. Uh, The White House is talking about it. It took uh, President Reagan several years before he would even say the word aid. So that's a very different thing. And then the groups being affected, um, there's not as much stigma. There is certainly still some. uh, We've seen some unfortunate uh, racism and xenophobia against uh, certain groups. Um, But it is a very different sort of thing. But I do think... I have at least a sense of what uh, my podcast guests were trying to tell me when they talked about the the sense of fear that pervaded um, mm-hmm. you know all of society at the beginning
0: right, and I think some of as you were talking it made me think that you know what many activists would say is that if if AIDS had affected straight people first, it probably would have been covered quite differently. And I think then your point that this is being covered quite differently speaks to that. Um, and and that, the, that that's part of what, you know, they were just constantly trying to get attention from mainstream media and politicians when it seemed like so much of, um, uh, of, of populations that weren't affected did not appear to care in any deep way until several years into the epidemic when it became better known that it was possible to, you know, that identity didn't matter. It was that there were certain behaviors that put you at risk, not your, your, your sexual identity or racial identity. Exactly. So um, I'd also like to, to ask you personally, since that's where you sort of started the conversation, can you say a bit about what it was like for you personally to do these interviews? I know you worked on this project for, for some amount of time. Uh, what impact has listening to and telling these stories um, and then also getting feedback. You start the last episode of the podcast with recordings of people who say how much the podcast means to them. So what impact has, has working on this and, and um, hearing and telling the stories about AIDS by an older generation of gay Catholics had on you?
1: It's been really powerful. Um, I, I think it's the, the impact of the series on me personally uh, has gone beyond what I expected it would be early on. Uh, there's an episode, uh, I think it's episode three, where we profile a Catholic priest uh, named uh, Father Bill McNichols. He's an icon, iconographer and artist. Uh, he also came out as gay in the 80s, which was a big deal at the time. He suffered some setbacks. And he said something to me uh, when I asked him for advice to give to LGBT Catholics today, like when people are struggling to find their place in the church. He said, look, you just have to kind of take your place in the church. You can't wait for some um, church authority to approve of your life before you start living it because it's not going to happen. And on the one hand, it's kind of bleak, right? Like everyone wants acceptance and approval. And he was saying, it's just not going to happen. But on the other hand, it was kind of inspiring because he wants people to just say, like, if you want to be there, you should be there. You have a right to be there like anyone else. So that that message from him was echoed by a lot of the guests I interviewed, especially LGBT Catholics who lived through the AIDS crisis in the 80s. So that was powerful to me. But even more moving than the guests was the feedback you referenced. Um, I received hundreds of messages um, once the series came out from people who had listened and said, um, you know, they had lost um, loved ones to HIV and AIDS. And... Some people said they regretted how they treated their gay sibling who died from AIDS or um, a child and that this had them thinking about how they responded and they wished they could do things differently. Uh, So those were really moving and sometimes heartbreaking. Uh, More inspiring, though, um, I think we feature in the last episode um, a young gay Catholic from San Francisco who said that he had felt completely alone, um, that he actually didn't feel like he had a place in the church, um, but his faith was really important to him, so he was struggling. And that he felt like uh, Plague, the podcast, offered him a community of people who understood his struggle. So that mm. was really powerful to me, that we were able to kind of connect these, um, you know, somewhat older people in their 60s, 70s, uh, to people in their 20s and 30s, to say that you do have a common bond and there is a community here for you.
0: That's great, that's, that's powerful. Um, and then the way you start the last episode is it's very touching to hear people uh, describing their reactions and what the podcast meant for them, and then to hear you sort of respond to some of the um, most common questions that people asked you. So uh, my last question for you today is if there are just any final lessons that this history about AIDS, about queer people, and the Catholic Church has for us today.
1: This is still very much an ongoing issue, Um, and I mean that in two ways. First, um, even though this is a history project, um, I look at the time from 1985 to 1995 more or less, which is considered the peak of the HIV and AIDS crisis in the U.S., HIV and AIDS is still very much an issue in this country, um, especially among young uh, queer men of color. Um, This is an epidemic that is not going down as fast as it should. There are some studies suggesting that the HIV rate is actually going up in some communities. So Hmm. I would challenge, you know, faith communities and believers who responded to this podcast to ask what their communities are doing now about this. And if the answer is nothing, which is um, true in a lot of cases, I would ask them to ask why. So that's on, that's one takeaway for me. Um, And then another one is the, the, kind of fight for LGBT acceptance in the Catholic Church and other religious communities is still very much an ongoing project as well. Um, we talked a little bit about how, I don't think the stigma is as prevalent in some communities as it was back in the 1980s, but I do hear from people, um, from readers and listeners saying that they've struggled to find a place in the church. Um, firings of LGBT people in Catholic institutions is not uncommon. I've reported several of those stories. Right. Uh, so this is still very much an issue um, that I think Catholics who want to um, see an equitable church and a church committed to justice are still struggling with this question. So my goal is to connect these stories to people who are still active in church circles and get them thinking about what's uh, still needed today.
0: Great, that's excellent. I mean, that's that's a really um, outstanding point, right? The the AIDS crisis is not over, and and right, it's it's maybe who is most affected now reveals other structural issues about society, and and I and I really like that call to um, uh, ask religious communities to to remain committed to how they can address these issues today. Uh, in, in 2020. Well, thank you very much. That's that's all the time we have for today. I've really appreciated this discussion and and all the work you have done uh, covering this in the magazine and for the podcast. So I'd like to thank our guest, Michael O'Loughlin, and as always, our production editor, Anna Donch. Make sure you check out the podcast Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church, and Michael's article in the upcoming June issue of The Revealer. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our Fourth episode next month when we discuss Hasidic Jews in New York who lead double lives while remaining committed to Hasidic Judaism. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Anna Donch. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.